Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chan Podcast. Here is where you learn about meditation and Chan. So, what is Chan? Chan, spelled as C H A N, is the Chinese school of Mahayana Buddhism and is the originating tradition of Japanese Zen. We encourage you to learn and practice meditation with a group. If you like to, feel free to visit our website, LondonChanMeditation.org. How's everyone? How's everyone doing? Healthy? Okay, you can wave to me if you want. Okay. So tonight's topic is. A lotus rising out of muddy waters. This uh, topic and motif is used for the Dharma relief. Initiative that we started under about us. You can see that our vision engage with the world and practicing in the midst of difficulties, and through our practice, we become. Uh, of some use for others and also for ourselves. The symbol of the lotus is predates Buddhism. So, in the early Vedic text, uh, lotus does not exist, does not grow, does not flourish in highlands. Instead, it grows in the muck, muddy waters, marshes, and it's able to flourish there. So, in the Chan tradition, we call it swampland flowers. The flowers that grow in swampland, and the swampland symbolizes. Samsara, the world of turbidity, world of suffering and anguish. But it is precisely in those situations that、uh, the lotus can grow and blossom. So Buddhism. Uh, use this analogy. The Buddha used this analogy in uh, uh, various texts.、Uh, one important text that was influential for the development of Chan Zen is the Vimalakirti Sutra. Vimalakirti talks about
how this particular bodhisattva, Vimala Kirti, manifests as a as a lay person in the world of anguish, suffering, so that he can be close to sentient beings, so that he can uh, be together with people, so that he can understand and gain nourishment from greed, hatred, ignorance, arrogance, suspicion and doubt, jealousy, in the midst of or the muddy waters of human life, the predicament of human life, and uh, be able to cultivate the Buddha path. So in, in that text, Vimalatirati Sutra, he's uh, having a dialogue basically with Manjushri Bodhisattva, which is the embodiment of wisdom. And um, so Manjushri asked him a question. How does a Bodhisattva practice the Buddha way? Not the Bodhisattva way, not the path of liberation. How does the Bodhisattva become a Buddha? And uh, Vimalakirti says, the Bodhisattva engages in the Buddha way that is not the Buddha way. The Manjushri was curious. Buddha way means not Buddha way. What does that mean? This well, is greed, hatred, ignorance, wallowing in the midst of uh, wealth, uh, five things that typically people are uh, uh, grasping. Fame. Fame or recognition. They do something good, they want to be recognized. Position. Maybe they want to get promoted. Or they want to have their own space. Power. Power. Power, all kinds of power. Basically, it means control, ability to control. And uh, uh, influence, sphere of influence. Sphere of influence. They want other people to listen to them. And the last one is 
They want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to be loved. They want to be loved. They want to be cared for. They want respect. So these five. So how does one practice the Buddha way? In the midst of these entanglements, in the muck, the marshes of uh, the world of manipulation. That's suffering. Because if we examine into ourselves, when we are interacting with others, and we have a lot of vexations, emotional afflictions, where did they come from? Probably one of these five. Unlikely that's not related to these five. For ordinary people. Even for spiritual practitioners. They're not getting what they want. They want practice, want awakening, they want to enter into samadhi, they want some peace, and they're not able to get it. And I have to get that position. So it doesn't matter if it's material or spiritual. These tendencies are always present. Whenever we relate to ourselves, we relate to other people. These five things are at work. So And then the Merakinti start to elaborate. Elaborate. How does one actually engage in this? So most people, when they are engaging, you know, feeling the need to be recognized, the need to have a position, status, able to control other people, uh, have power, and, uh, the sphere of influence and respect and loved. They are just engulfed by them. So the way Vimalakirti practices is fame. In the midst of fame, Maybe do some philanthropical work, humanitarian work, helping other people. Everyone loves him. He becomes famous in the midst of fame, recognition, not attached. It's like a false facade that he utilizes in order to help people. Because these things, they're quite useful. These worldly forms of Turbidity, engrossment. They're quite useful. So you, he uses them, cultivates them for the benefit of sentient beings. One, also for us practitioners, use them in the, that process. We expose all of our reactions that come up when we're not recognized, when we are defamed, criticized, when we have no power, no one one wants to hear anything we have to say. 
we're not loved. In the midst of that, all the things that come up, they become your path. They reveal to you your vexations. So the main point of this is when we interact with other people and we are experiencing some trouble, some vexations, our natural impulse governed by these five things is to run away from them, get away from them, or try to control them. The Bodhisattva practitioners, us Chan practitioners, we use it to expose the natural tendencies, habits, emotional afflictions that come up. Once they come up, we allow them to vanish. We allow them to dissolve into uh, our body mind. Body mind. The mind set for the way. The mind is actually practicing. We allow the mind that practices, engage in practicing, to dissolve them. What is that mind? It's the mind that works with vexations. How do they dissolve? Expose. Embrace. Work through and let go. That's a practitioner. That's a practitioner. If you try to have revenge, you try to get over someone, or try to run away, escape, not practice. So, in the midst of that, exposing our vexations, accepting them, because they're, they're ours. Because the same event happened to someone else, they will have some other reaction. You are having that reaction. This is yours. It's your problem. The external environment needs to be taken care of. We don't run away. We're not oblivious to it. But we can't take care of it if we are vexed. So we have to take care of it. And taking care of it, we have to be at peace. So we're going to take care of our vexations. That's practice. Embrace. Accept them. Which means show their the responsibility. And then try to work through them. Try to work through them. Then we can let go of them. And they naturally let go. Have less hold on us. Because we're practicing. On the other hand, so we do this, right? on the other hand, the difficult people, they are precisely the one that reveal to us our own path. What path is that? The Buddha path. This is from Vibhinakirti Sutra. So, to practice the Buddha way, the Buddha path, is to be completely immersed in and not run away from the murky waters of samsara, all the entanglements. That's practice. Uh, Our ability to do that 
the extent to which we can do that come from our practice. If you practice only meditation, you get very good at it. You study the scripture and uh, you still have the same vexations when other people piss you off. And then it's not really practice. You just acquire some kind of skill, some kind of mental exercise, physical exercise. So uh, it's not so useful. But just having the external appearance of a practitioner is uh, not enough. It's not so useful. I remember um, when, I, um, when I was a young novice practicing with my teacher, Master Shen Yun. At Nongchan Monastery, we had a, we have something called Ganlu Men. Ganlumen, which is the, the gates of uh, ambrosia. This is the drink of the gods, right? the drink of the divine. Right? Basically, what, what is that? It's a counseling center. It's a counseling center. So in the monastery, we have an office space, a room, in which the laity can come in and pour out all their questions. And whoever's turn that night to sit in the, the, that room, special room, uh, you know, the gates of Amerta, Elixir, right? uh, will have to counsel the lay people. So this is in the early 90s. Early 90s, my teachers, students, monastic students, we're all in our 20s. We have no life experience whatsoever. You know, some of them are in their 30s, but the Sangha is very, very young. So here we are sitting, you know, the lay people coming one after another, <laughs> full house every night. They come in and they tell us what kind of problem. What kind of issues in your life? Marriage, relationship, uh, job, uh, careers, family. A small minority of them coming with questions of meditation, what we're doing. So usually people sign up. So, when I went back to Taiwan, I didn't know what the hell it was. So it's all these empty slots. I mean, no one wants to sign up. So I didn't know what it was. I remember the first time I just signed up. Well, just sign up. I got nothing better to do. Sign up every night. <laughs> and then I realized why people didn't sign up to counsel them. Because it's embarrassing. There's a sense of hypocrisy there. There's a sense of hypocrisy. A person who knows nothing of the world, the entanglement, the manipulation, the greed, the, the hatred, you know, jealousy over aspects of fame, position, status, a power, you know, 
you know, love relationships. We're stuck counseling people experiencing that. We have no idea. Most of the people just graduate from college, become a monastic. So it's a kind of built-in hypocrisy and embarrassment, helplessness. We have no idea how to counsel people. So after one summer of that, I used to travel with my teacher back and forth, New York, Taiwan, New York, Taiwan, sometimes we go to Europe to leave retreats. After the first summer, first summer, novice, I said, Sifu, we have no idea what to say. Of course, we have our stock things to say, right? Passed down through the Dharma brothers and sisters. Right? We just tell them, if it's this problem, 100,000 recitation of this particular Bodhisattva's name. Or that one, <laughs> the Buddhist name. And then do more prostrations. So basically, we tell them to do more meditation, do more prostrations, uh, recitation, mantra. Unfortunately, none of them really clicked with me. Like growing up in the West, I saw that it's, it's this religious ritual. Is that, is that Chan? Is that Zen? It's Mahayana Buddhism, but you know, being, being a, a humanist, humanist, the recitation, logically, if you recite long enough, concentrated enough, through the concentration, you know, the vexations will be quenched. I remember my teacher said to me, mantra practice, recitation practice, it's kind of like you have vexations, you put a cover over the vexations. As long as the recitation is present, they don't surface. It's kind of a temporary fix. So, I mean, he said it in a specific context, right? but th that really resonated with me. So I felt like a hypocrite. I said, Sifu, I, I can't do this. And he said to me, this is, this is what they need. They need to have something concrete to hold on to. They need to feel like they can do something about their vexations, do something. It's like accountability, 20,000 recitation, 10,000 prostrations, you know, this and that. But it's an expedient means. In the midst of doing that, their mind will calm down. Made sense to me. But there was one aspect that I couldn't really accept. I understand the practice aspect. If they engage in practice, it'll be helpful. Their minds will be at ease. There's one aspect. Maybe this is my personality. I said, but if we don't know their suffering, if we don't know the extent of their suffering, their experience with work, 
family, with friendship, with manipulation, with being, you know, relationship and so on. How do, how do we know how to help them? How do we generate the empathy? We have no experience in that. He says, a doctor does not need to have cancer in order to cure cancer. That also makes sense. But to me, I felt something was missing. So I said to him, and that kept, kept with me during my monastic years. I said, yeah, but still we have, we don't know how they feel. It's not a prescription that we're giving to people, same pre prescription. We don't know how they feel. The core of their anguish. How do you prescribe the right antidote? How do you sympathize? How do you be present to that? He says to me, finally, he says, Google, very dangerous. Very dangerous. Just don't touch that. Don't touch that. If you jump into the ocean, you may not come back. The ocean of suffering. To feel what they feel. That kind of stuck with me. And uh, emerged again. Uh, doing before I left monasticism, I said, Shifu, I'm, I'm going into the ocean. And he said to me, how do you know you'll come back? How do you know you won't drown? And I said to him, I'll be back. I have to do this. For me, I can't live with this hypocrisy or just assigning some method to people without actually feeling their pain, experiencing what they're ex actually experiencing. So my shifu says, okay. I left monasticism after a year. I said, Shifu, I want to come back. <laughs> Too much suffering. Uh, he says, I don't even want to save sentient beings. <laughs> you stay, stay. At least finish your PhD. And then we talk about it. And I get into PhD. He says, you should, you should marry, actually. Marry. And have kids. I follow his instructions. Marry. Kids. And then I understood what suffering, <laughs> chaos, not all suffering, but the complexity of relationship, the complexity of dealing with kids that unreasonable, 
You tell them not to do this, you should eat your vegetable. No, <laughs> it's not like they use their reason. <laughs> their rational brain has not developed yet. And then dealing with my students. I used to give my teacher a lot of hard time. I'm always the one talking back to him. He says something, I said, yeah, but what about that? You know. And now when I teach, my students doing the same thing to me. So, so karma, right? Or you can, you can call it, this is what I was asking for. So it's my path. It's, it's my practice. In this practice, Buddha Dharma, It's like the blood running through my veins. It's not in books, nor is it in some talk. In the midst of relating to people, I discover my own problems, my own shortcomings, my own vexations. And that's my path. Exposing, embracing, being present to them without running away, working through them, being free from them. It's an endless task. And this is what must be done. This is the Buddha way. Going back to the analogy of the lotus. I'm not saying I'm a lotus. What, I'm, what I am saying is, that's the way to practice. How to be a lotus? How to flourish? You, to be like a lotus. The lotus stem, the core, is empty. But you have to be put aside, learn to put aside you know, self-referential attachments to the five turbidities. Now, how do you do that? The mind for the way, the Buddha way, expose, embrace, work through, and you let go. It's not a linear process, but it's a process back and forth, back and forth. With different people, we learn to adapt, to recognize, to kind of work with it. So that is the practice. It's not to say that I don't experience vexations. I do. I'm present to them. I don't run away from them. I face them. I dive in. When I get lost, sometimes, I like, like all of you, what? we're practitioners. We get lost, we come back. We learn how to swim. We dive into the water, we can swim. The more you practice, the more skill you become. 
if you don't practice, or you read about practice in books, helpless, completely helpless when you're in the midst of vexations. Just knowledge, everything goes out the window. So you have to practice, right? So is monastic practice better than lay practice? Depends. What phase of practice you're in? What kind of personality you are? It's sometimes suitable for some people, sometimes not. So, sometimes, for me, I learned meditation when I was a boy. Uh, met my teacher. And then I could practice, go through school. He saw me grew up, went to the monastery. So my foundation was there. But I would say for me, uh, Buddha Dharma came alive in my life when I left monasticism. Of course, in the monastic setting, or you don't have to think of this as monastic setting, maybe in retreat setting, in a sheltered space, in a duration of time, you can actually go quite deep in the practice, but uh, that depth has to be embodied, has to be tested. Right? And that's what, when things come alive. So in China, we have a, we have a saying for this. So you have to die the great death in order to live the great life. So you can't just do halfway. Yeah. Put to death that's going to self-grasping. That's it. No. Put to death the self-grasping, vexations, and then you have to be tested in daily life. In murky, muddy water, in the swamp, in the low marshes, and the wisdom will be able to manifest. The function of wisdom able to manifest. So you need a balance, right? A most lay life you can have. Every year you have sometimes set aside for intensive practice, retreat, session, and then you have daily practice. And then very important aspect, life as practice, interacting with people. So, uh, and then you practice, they start to mutually benefit. So next time we face someone difficult, we face criticism, we face backstabbing, backstabbing. We face wrong accusation. Now, you didn't do this, but someone blame you for doing it. Not to say you don't engage with the external environment, make it better. Of course you do. But if you try to do that with vexation and the entanglement of karma that you face will continue.
The very reason why you're facing is because of you. So uh, your own past, your own propensity, tendency, that's why you're behaving, you're facing situations like this. So deal with, engage with the world, at the same time we quench the vexations, and we expose, and we understand different aspects of ourselves. That's what practice is about. It's not just sitting meditation, reading scriptures. So this is the Chan approach, and this is the embodiment of what the Vimalakirti Sutra talks about as the Buddha way. Lotus blossoming in muddy water. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma Talk by Chan teacher Guo Gu, who is a founder and teacher at Tallahassee Chan Center in the United States. You can find more talks from him at tallahasseechan.org.